Kathy Foley-Meyer. Welcome to Outside Inside Radio. This episode, we are paying tribute to our colleague and friend, Ella Turan, who left us much too soon. I'm here today with two lovely ladies, Lori Pompa, who is the founder and executive director of the Inside Out Center and the international headquarters of the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program at Temple University, and Annie Buckley, who is the founder and director of the Prison Arts Collective and a professor at San Diego State University. Ladies, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to have you here and to be talking about our amazing colleague, Ella Turan, who did so many things. Ella was an artist. She performed theater. She was an activist. And both of you knew her longer than I knew her. She inspired me to do this podcast and get involved in this kind of work. Annie, I know you guys worked together for about seven years. Yeah, it's such an honor to be here in this space to remember our amazing friend and colleague and so excited to learn more from Lori and from our other guests about the work that she did across space and time, merging art and activism. And with Prison Arts Collective, I initially met Ella through this work and it was at a conference um, at Occidental College. And she just right away, we like beeline to each other and just connected. And I was a little newer to the work and she kind of oriented me and we just laughed and had fun and got to know one another and have just remained in touch ever since. And she was a big supporter of Prison Arts Collective. She did her amazing one-woman show in the prison for the women. She did workshops with them. She was a great advisor and collaborator and friend. And with this podcast, and she brought it all together. It started and we sort of got it going with some students and some volunteers. And we sort of weren't sure what to do with this thing, but we knew it had potential. And then Ella wanted to get involved again and really just took it on with you, Kathy, and made it so special. So Lori, it's so wonderful to have you on it. And can you just share a little bit from your experience, you know, how you came to work with Ella and how she's been involved? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting, Annie, you use the word honored. And thinking about doing this, I, I realized that I had two feelings that I was honored to be on this podcast that Ella was so deeply involved in. And I also feel very conflicted because I still find it hard to believe that Ella isn't with us anymore. I mean, I just, I know it. can't wrap my heart around that. I guess. Let me tell you how I uh, came to know Ella. So almost 25 years ago, I started a class in the Philadelphia jails where I took students from Temple University, that's where I teach, in over the course of a semester. And we met with folks inside the jail and studied together on a weekly basis. It was, I think, the fall of 1997. And it was just such an amazing experience. And I just kept doing it. And then it grew. And at this point, it's an international program. And we have trained more than 1,200 educators to do this throughout the United States and in 12 other countries. I mean, it's gone places I never could have imagined. And so in there, I think it was maybe 15 years ago or so, Ella took the training and I just was so taken by her, her spirit, her energy, her creativity, the whole thing. She caught my eye and it was very soon after she took the training that I asked her if she would be willing to co-facilitate. Over the years now, we've had, I think it's 78 trainings. She has co-facilitated about a third of them. So we have worked intensively together because these trainings are week-long intensive trainings. And I have to say, you know, that's a lot of work with a person over a long time. We never had any conflict. We laughed a lot. There's something about Ella, mm -hmm. even just thinking about her, I smile, I kind of yes. laugh inside. We used to make each other laugh. It was almost like we had an inside joke, but neither of us knew what it was. <laughs> it was just, yeah. there was this joy that we shared. You know, and I have to say that when I sent the message out to people across our network that she had uh, passed away, I cannot tell you the outpouring of 
grief and shock that because it was so sudden, she was so young and so full of life. It was stunning to everybody. People have said things like, I'm sorry, I, I can't compute that. In fact, that was my first response when I heard it. Just so yeah, sorry. me too. Oh, so let me say some things about the trainings. Not only was she involved in co-facilitating, she also helped to deepen the trainings and take just in directions that we had never thought about before, just because of her depth and her way of seeing. Add on to that, when we had to go virtual, she was the person who essentially translated this very hands-on experience to the virtual realm. And we came to do it really well. I mean, we tweaked after every virtual training. We had, I think, 11 virtual trainings. And the next to the last training uh, we had, which Kathy was part of, when was that, Kathy? In August? It was in August and September. Okay. So oddly enough, may well have been the best training ever, including all of the hands-on trainings. I mean, it was, maybe it was just that we were getting better at it. People were more and more used to Zoom. I don't know. We often over the years would say, wow, that was the best training ever. And this actually probably was, and we just laughed about it. Yeah, it was a really intense, emotional experience. Yeah, we had a tremendous amount of fun. Yes, exactly. That too. And it was a, a funny group. But it, there's another part of the work that Ella did with us that was very important. She was part of our executive committee for years. And that executive committee kind of helps us to think through things, uh, decision making, all of that. And as part of the executive committee, and just as a colleague and as a friend, Ella was somebody that I could always go to and bounce things off of. And just her way of seeing things. It was just, she saw things in very wide and deep ways. She really helped me to you know, understand different dimensions of things. I don't know what I'm going to do without that. I just have to say. I want to share a couple of little memories of Ella. I mean, over all the years, there are tons and tons of memories, right? But one was she would come into Greaterford Prison which is this maximum, was, it's closed now, but this maximum security prison to do the trainings. And the first time that she went to Greaterford, she was very moved by the experience. Maybe a whole year later that we were together and she said that she was vegetarian. And I said, oh, well, when did you start that? She said, after my first trip to Greaterford, she said, you know, I realized the kind of sacrifice that prison kind of imposes on people. And I thought, just out of solidarity, I want to do something that some way that I can show my solidarity. And so immediately from then until the end of her life, she was vegetarian. And it's so interesting. She didn't tell me that right away. It took about a year. That's Ella. Another thing about Ella that is so inspiring is she never talked about herself. It was never about her. It was always about the work and not work in that worky way, but the life's work that she was about. A wonderful memory is. So this one woman show, Love, Locks, and Liberation, I may be the only person who had my own private showing of that entire show. She had come to Philadelphia to do a training with me some years ago, and she was staying with me for a, a night or two, and she was telling me about it. And I said, well, can you do it for me? And she, and she just stood up in my living room and did the entire show, and it was a riot. I just felt so lucky. That's incredible. What a beautiful yeah. experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm just smiling about it, thinking about it. I could just see her doing that. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> And here, here's another thing. I mean, that's the absolute joy she had. There was this other crazy training we had in Michigan. The thing that I remember most from that training is that somebody suggested everybody roll down this hill at the training, the conference center. And we have videos. Ella videoed people rolling down the hill and you could hear her laughing in the background. I mean, all we'd have to do is say Michigan and we would start laughing because that's what you know we would remember. <laughs> um, and then this last one, little memory, and this is hard to explain without a visual, but so one time we were sitting in Greaterford. It was during a time when people were in small groups. And so Ellen and I were sitting together and we 
would chit chat about all sorts of things. I mean, obviously about the training, but other things too. And she noticed an earring that I had on and she just um, kind of, it was a very small earring, maybe an inch long. And she, she drew the earring and then she started to draw other things around it. I didn't think anything. About a month later, she contacted me. She said, I'm going to send you something in the mail. What she had done was from that inch long earring, she had developed this beautiful sketch of a woman that is framed. It's in my dining room. It is gorgeous. I mean, that's just her ability to see, to see things. And then to be able to produce them visually was just stunning. I <laughs> I look at that. It, I mean, sometimes it chokes me up, obviously, to, to look at it. So, you know, she spent, what was it, 10, 12 years at Occidental in, um, in administration. She really loved doing that. And I remember having many talks with her in the last couple of years because she was really wrestling with this idea of going to grad school. She really wanted to do that, but she felt torn, you know? And so, so we went back and forth and back and forth. So when she finally made that decision and then, you know, moved to the, the program at Irvine, it was a freeing sort of thing because she was able to pursue in a much deeper way than she ever had before a part of her life's work, which had everything to do with art and social justice. And every single time I talked with her over that year and a half, she was in the program about it. She loved what she was experiencing in the program. That's so beautiful. I, I felt like I remember the day she told me. I was just so blown away and so happy for her. And she seemed so full of joy about the decision. And I thought it was so brave, you know, to do that at the time that she did and leaving the job that she had. And it was, she did. She loved it. And I felt like she also dedicated so much of her time in those past couple of years to going and doing more like the voiceover work. And she had so many talents and being able to do that, you know, as an artist, like being able to give more of your time to doing your art, like that's everything. And the fact that she did that, you know, and then it ended up being near her end, you know, tragically, I always feel like, oh, I'm so glad she did that. Yeah. Yeah. I am too. I, I feel like the program UCI, which I'm also in, had a way of pulling all those threads of her life together mm-hmm. and kind of reinforcing what she was doing. It's like, you're on the right path and now you can work all these threads at once in one place. Mm-hmm. So, but Lori, I was remembering, we actually looked at pictures in the training of people rolling down the hill um, <laughs> at the other training. And I remember that. And I was thinking about what you were saying. And there was something about her spirit because we had some quirky personalities in our training as well. But she had this kind of accepting, embracing spirit. And so, where maybe in some instances, those people might have been, you know, made to feel like, oh, you don't really belong. There was none of that energy because she didn't really have that energy. So, we sort of embraced the quirks. And it made for a lot of laughter and true feeling in a positive way. You know, Kathy, as you describe her in that way, in some ways, it's it's like her soul was it very advanced, you know, the kindness that she had towards people. I mean, you know, sometimes I would get kind of edgy about this person or that person. I'd be talking with her and she would always suggest, well, maybe there's this going on or something, you know, right. so exactly what you're talking about. And I said to her probably more than once, I want to be just like you when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of said the same thing. She had a way of seeing the whole person immediately because uh-huh. typically, you know, when you spend time with people, they reveal themselves to you over time and you're like, oh, okay, now that's why that is the way it is. But she immediately grasped all the layers of a person. Yes. And when and when she did that to you, it's so powerful because you're being totally seen and with all of your, you know, quirks and flaws. And it's an extremely loving way to look at humanity. And she did it seemingly effortlessly. It just poured out of her. And, you know, I, I, I found something interesting 
there's a one particular thing that she and I shared in common that she actually is fundamentally shy, as am I. And so how, how interesting it is, I especially think about her and just how public she became in her art and just compensating, you know, really working on that to be able to put herself forth in that way. And with all that, she still remained a, a pretty private person. Uh, I mean, I think I knew her pretty well, but well, there's lots of things that I, I don't think I knew about her. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's one thing that's so beautiful about talking to so many people, like similar to what you were saying, you know, everybody just has this outpouring of just shock and grief and she touched so many people so far and wide in different ways. So it's interesting to hear from you because I knew from her how much she loved the work and how important it was to her. So it's just come full circle and, and lovely to meet you and hear about how much integral she was to it because she just it's interesting right to see this kaleidoscope of how someone yeah. impacts the world with so much light that she did the type of work that you guys both do where you're dealing with a population that often isn't seen in the context of their daily life and so for her to have that gift and bring that energy into your space is incredibly powerful mm -hmm. and life-changing it makes me think of something that tyrone said tyrone works with us tyrone spent 37 years in prison and then he um, his life sentence was commuted and he has worked with us ever since. And so he's known uh, Ella for years and he knew her when, you know, she started with the trainings. And one of the things that he said was when she began with the trainings, it's like she became the heart and soul of the program. And he said, I love this. He said, she brought pizzazz to the program. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what am I, chopped liver? Anyway. <laughs> But, you know, it's true. Yeah. The heart and soul thing, that is so to the point, which is why so many people's hearts have been broken by this, you know, and why I feel like I have this huge hole in my heart. And yeah, like how many hearts she touched. It's so moving. And what, you know, we all want to aspire to, right? To have that much of a light-filled impact on the world. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts and memories. It's so beautiful. I feel like Ella's in the space with yeah. us. Yeah, what, I feel that too. Whenever we do anything, when I work with you, Annie, I feel like she's in the space kind of watching over us. And, and I sort of feel like she's in our space now, you know, yep, she's with us. I'm like Lori and then I'm still in denial. I expect to hear from her. <laughs> because I haven't really accepted part of me is not accepted that she's gone but and I sometimes I do feel like I hear from her like like we're you know moving in the right direction or we're doing the right thing by keeping going and yeah so one of the ways that that I think about this is that I never took Ella for granted meaning just um, her way of being in the world right. her creativity her all of that but what I did take for granted was that she would be there and suddenly she's not physically but I have to say, even though it's hard to hold on to this, I do feel her presence and her spirit very joyfully kind of around me <laughs> a lot. And it's so it's that the grief and the joy and the presence and the absence, it, it's all mixed together. And I think it's going to take a long time, a long time. Yeah. I read a phrase recently. I think it's life loves on um, mm -hmm. and that sort of comforts me. And I think a lot of times you, you want to be done with your grief because you feel like, oh, I need to. But that's actually not kind of moving with it is part of it as well. And so you carry that person with you for a while. It's sort of you let them go and then they let you go, but not all the way. It's one of those human condition conundrums <laughs> that we just have to try to deal with with as much grace as we possibly can. 
It has been so lovely to remember Ella with both of you. And thank you very, very much for your time. And in her spirit, I wish you both all the best. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lori. So nice to talk with you. I'm very happy to be here today with Charlot Lucien. He is the founder and director of the Haitian Artist Assembly of Massachusetts. And I'm also here with Annie Buckley, who is the executive director of the Prison Arts Collective and a professor at San Diego State University. Welcome, both of you, Charlot and Annie. Thank you for having me. We're excited to have you. Thank you. This has been such a meaningful episode of our podcast, and we're just so grateful to speak to people like Kathy and I. We're colleagues and friends and loved Ella and Charlotte. We're so happy to have you here who has known her a long time and in a different capacity from me, from maybe others that we're speaking with. So thank you so much for making time. And if you could just maybe start off by sharing a little bit how you got to know Ella and the type of work you did together in the arts. So back in 1995, a group of Haitian artists here in Boston in a different field, uh, storytelling, visual arts, music, poetry, we got together and we started the Haitian artists in 1995. So it has been going on for quite some time until one good day, I think in 1997, I got a phone call from a young student who just moved in Massachusetts and who loved theater and art and who wanted to connect with a network that would have Haitian artists because of how she felt about Haiti, what she loved about Haiti. I invited her to a visit and there was this beautiful soul, this uh, lively person who was eager to connect a group of Haitian artists and to be mentored. So she would have been around, I think, 22. So I'm talking about 1996 or 1997 again. And then there we started the collaboration. Now there was something very unique about her presence in the group in the sense that A, she was the youngest member of the group because all of us have been around. I was maybe among the youngest also. And second, she was also bringing some different type of of uh, perspective, both generationally, but also in terms of style. It was beyond the boundaries of the traditional Haitian artwork, the writing or the literary styles that we had in Haitian Creole or in French. And also personality-wise, she brought something in terms of being always lively, keeping those meetings cheerful when we were discussing topics that could have very intellectually oriented when debating literature or when decided how to sell, how to promote, or how to defend Haiti using uh, visual art. So again, her participation, her personality, her perspectives, the style that she brought contributed to really make us better, to kind of help us broaden our horizon. So I will tell you more and spent some time collaborating until she moved, I think, to New York and then to California. But yet we continued actually to interact. 2020, for the 25th anniversary of the Haitian Artists Assembly, she joined us remotely. And in the meantime, also, she had traveled to participate in events that we were holding here. So the connection, the roots were really deep and we enjoyed this collaboration. That is so, so beautiful. Sadly, just after Ella passed, I was able to watch the one woman show she did about Haiti. But so to hear you share that memory makes me think of that performance that she did about her whole history with being Haitian. Do you have a memory that stands out that you were wanting to share with I have plenty. <laughs> Let me tell you, back in 2020, when I invited her to join me as a co-host, because we had to actually do this uh, remotely, we had invited uh, all kind of volunteers, poets, painters, and musicians to join us in this live Zoom to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the Assembly. That's quite a milestone. So she got a bit emotional when she was sharing with people that we have been to her a family since she first moved in Boston with no connection and no relatives 
in Massachusetts. And then we embraced her. This was to explain why. When she was invited to co-host this particular commemoration of the assembly, she was thrilled. And that validated the kind of connection that we had with her. So I was looking at her and she had invited her mother to join at this particular event in uh, 2020 because she was so meaningful to her. I know that because I was her first or her initial point of contact, there was some kind of particular bonds. I looked at her as the little sister that I didn't have here. And then she moved to New York. I mean, there were some occasional getting in touch or keeping her in our email list. And I got this very special invitation as the featured guest artist, storyteller for a very high profile event happening in New York. And apparently she had gotten the gig to be the coordinator or the promoter of this event. So she had recommended me. So here I am now with my name featured as this main guest speaker for this organization that was pulling Haitians together in order to promote democracy in Haiti. So that was meaningful because she had not actually informed me that she was thinking of me and she was able to convince those people. So I know that I am kind of known here in Massachusetts and in some places, but for her to be able to achieve that in New York, that was to me a true force. The other thing also to share, and I will tell you more about this book. Yes. Revolution. Ella started to contact Haitian artists in Massachusetts, part of the Haitian Artists Assembly Group, about this project that she had. I knew that, of course, we would contribute, but I had no idea of the scope of work she had envisioned. Because what Ella did in this book, I mean, it's kind of fourfold. So there was this void, both in Haiti and in the diaspora, about meaningful ways to celebrate the bicentennial of Haiti. So, of course, there have been many other movements or activities, small scales, but to me, in the diaspora, that was the most powerful, the most meaningful illustration has been done for this celebration. What Ella did is contact. She was maybe 27, 28. She was able to reach out to those Haitian cultural luminaries. So she pulled together close to 40 to 50 Haitian cultural luminaries. I don't know how she did it. She made contact. I personality why. Right. So this book, to me, achieved three things. She kind of filled a void in whatever was missing in terms of celebrating the bicentennial of Haiti in the diaspora. Second, she actually brought together the Haitian cultural community throughout at least the U.S. Because in this book, she has painters, she has poets, writers, dancers, all of them writing in three languages. That, again, is another feast. She reconciled some of those linguistic, cultural gaps and dilemma when she get this book, if you see carefully, Revolution, 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 in all three languages, mm -hmm. using all of the Haitian flag. I appreciated that she put this different type of Haitian painting here on the cover because this is an illustration of the Haitian unknown maroon, the unknown enslaved. So that was one of her paintings where she was celebrating the unknown maroon. And that was on the cover of this book. To me, it was leadership. It was demonstrating what can be done when at the age of 27 and 28, she patiently took the time to reach out to all those people, several states, and then to produce a quality book, well-edited, all kind of index to help you find what you need. When I think about what she did here, the book wasn't about her. It right. was about featuring others. And again, to think that she would think about me and others and never failed to say yes when we called on her to join some of our activities. Yeah, that is what made her so special, that ability to reach out over and over again and to bring people together like that. And when you were talking about the anniversary of Haitian independence, we know that Ella received, she was a member of the 1804 list of Haitian American changemakers and wants to watch. I think she was nominated for that, I believe, last year. 2019. 
2019. Okay. So could you talk a little bit about what that means? True. Ultimately, she was actually given the award. Yeah. Accepted onto the list. The 1804 list of uh, changemakers is a project of the Haitian Roundtable, which is based in New York. So the Haitian uh, Roundtable started in 2008. However, one of their signature events that really puts them in the map and made them a solid diaspora-wide entity, this 1804 list where through a fair process, they identify individuals who are making a difference in their professional, cultural, or academic field by not only by performing, but also by putting Haiti in the map in different uh, states, by getting their environment to understand and appreciate who Haitians are, what Haiti is, and also get those contributions to benefit the community at large. So it has happened, they've identified folks like Kwame Raoul, who's a powerful legislator in Chicago. I'm talking about uh, Jimmy Jean-Louis, who's a great uh, Hollywood actor. I'm talking about Richard Prosper, who was the United Nations in charge of investigating great crimes in Rwanda. We are talking about Marissa Fleur, first Haitian American legislator in the US. We are talking about gay. So just to say that this is a powerful list of all who make an impact. So in 2019, Ayla was nominated by someone and then the research was conducted and ultimately she made it into the list. So I know that this is a recognition, not only of her passion and her devotion for art and culture, but also for the fact that she was able to use it to make changes. That you see Ayla unannounced showing up in an event. I saw this uh, video and asking for the mic to recite a poem about uh, Haiti in order to dismantle those racist and anti-immigrant discourses. I know that she has to be passionate and she needed the strength to make this happen. So there's a very famous video clip where someone is saying, we have our sister here, she's Haitian, and she wants to say something about Haiti. And Ella just got on stage and then get her mic and then to actually spit this out from her guts and from her heart. This was actually the kind of uh, personality that would attract the ones who actually selected uh, those uh, change makers. So it was deserved, actually. Yeah, she was very proud of being Haitian and very connected to being Haitian. And I was curious, listening to you speak about the change makers list, if you think there is something about being from Haiti as opposed to other parts of the diaspora and being a Haitian American that kind of propels you to create in the way that you did and that Ella did? I'm going to say yes. So Haitians migrate here. When I do presentations, by the way, one of my favorite icebreakers for those who are more than a certain age, think about Haiti, go back. What are some of those names or denominations or things that you associate with? And it was common to hear both people, HIV AIDS. Remember HIV back in the days was called four H's, right? Right. Hemophiliacs, homosexuals, heroines, heroin, and Haitian. Ah. So I'm giving those as examples of the stereotyping of the discrimination, of the batching Haitians have been subjected to at some point. Mm -hmm. So the Ella generation and some of you who understood and who decided to stand up and fight felt this deeper responsibility to really further identify and to promote who we are by creating either art, visual art, poetry, dance, and uh, all kinds of other expression to tell people who we are. So 2004 was an opportunity to get this discourse out to get young Haitians and young Haitian Americans proud, to get the one who keep actually demeaning Haiti to know what's all about Haiti. So Ella kind of participated in this movement and her inspiration to get people to participate in this book was a clear illustration of her belief, of her pride as a Haitian. So I think many Haitian artists still feel this 
And when you get what happened in San Diego last year in El Paso, when you get an American president using those kind of demeaning and nasty words toward Haiti and other Latin American and African countries, once again, far from getting us down, it further get people like Ila, like Edwish Dotika, or like myself to go back into our roots and then to get out this type of information for people to appreciate. Thank you so much for that, Charlotte. Thank you for sharing the power because that is really it. I feel like there still seems to be a bias against immigrants from Haiti. And so it erupts every once in a while in the news when someone has attempted to emigrate and then been denied. So, you know, we definitely still have work to do. So it's good to know that Haitian artists are out there doing their work so that we can move forward into a more just and understanding and accepting position. Thank you so much for giving us an in-depth view of of Ella's being. You know, we all loved her and knew her. She was kind of a private person and her Haitianess was not necessarily performative, although she was a performer. She didn't perform her group membership like some people do, where they're sort of telegraphing to you, I am this, this, this. She really didn't do that. So you might have found out that she was Haitian in the course of a conversation with her but you know she didn't wear i mean i never saw like a you know a t-shirt or something that sometimes people do when they have a strong group identity that they want to be performative or demonstrative about in public so thank you for giving us that side there is this universal dimension about her that we also have to appreciate because people may have seen that not too long ago she was having some of her performances both the poetry and yes. the on-stage art about hairstyle. Yes, Love, Locks, and Liberation. I saw her perform that. Yes, well, now this book that you see here, that's the anthology of Haitian poets in Massachusetts, Anthologie des Poètes Haïtiens du Massachusetts. This is from 1999. That's the first anthology that, as a group, that we released. Ella Turin here is on page 73. Woolly metal hair. My woolly metal hair, why must you pain me so? Many would not sing your accolades and would vehemently argue that you are beauty, that you are unique, that you are natural, that you are African to the root. But let's face it, these roots are not always comely. They get tangled, they get knotted. Uh -huh. So Ella has been writing about those topics right here in Boston in 1999. Yes, thank you for sharing. It's so beautiful, I love that. I love it. Absolutely copy of this page oh thank you oh, yes we send us copies of both of those we'll put them on our social media right we're on the same page that's exactly what only last thing i wanted to ask you is where might people be able to find these books if listeners want to read them are they available for people or so this book is no longer available 1999 okay. one of my two remaining copies that's one okay <laughs> uh, i should actually try to make some research to let you know about it okay I, Two of Ella's friends who attended our recent tribute to her, very powerful moment where they couldn't even speak. They were so emotional about it. Martin and that's Regine, I'll tell you about them. Oh, and again, Edwidge also paid tribute to her. So the connection was there. I also want to say quickly that Ella uh, participated with us in effort that we as an assembly group, we did fundraising to send out supplies to kids in three different regions of Haiti. So mm -hmm. Ella always responded to the call sending yes. her contribution or asking her, asking us how she can actually make it work. So her soul, her heart was both here in the U.S. but also in Haiti with the most uh, impoverished or the, the most disfranchised. Thank you so much for sharing also about her at 22. I loved hearing that. I could, I mean, I know I saw like pictures of it in her performance, but having met her a little bit later, it was nice to think of that time. Good, good. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 
Thank you for sharing her in a way that she was always sending her goodness out into the world. And so it's nice to hear other ways that she was doing that, you know. Thank you, Charlotte. I could listen to you all day with your stories. It's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so very much again for putting this together. I'm here today with Dr. Bridget Cooks, Associate Professor at UC Irvine of African American Studies, Visual Studies, Art History, and Culture and Theory. And today we're having a special show. We are honoring Ella Turan, who was the co-host and co-producer of this program. We lost Ella unexpectedly over the Christmas holiday. And so we're getting together to remember her and celebrate her life. So welcome to the show, Bridget. Thank you so much, Kathy. We are excited. So um, why don't you tell us just a little bit about how you made Ella's acquaintance and your work together? So it was shortly before the fall of 2019. That's when Ella entered the PhD program in visual studies at UC Irvine. And it's common for professors to read the applications of students whose interests overlap with their own. And that's part of the process of making them an offer to become a graduate student in the program. So I was absolutely delighted to read her initial application because she was clearly a standout. I I love it when students come to graduate school after having some life experience, Mm -hmm. and she was so accomplished. She was. It's very unusual for someone to go from being administration at a college or university to being a graduate student. And she was someone who had that experience. I think her time in school as an administrator was well spent and she was able to help people and to help programs run and to assist with student needs. But her interest in performing and research and her desire to know more, particularly about the roles of Black women in media studies, particularly television, and then also visual artists, really encouraged her to go back to school and leave her profession, you know, where she had healthcare and a salary and, you know, she was a grown woman. And so I saw her certainly as a student in that professional way. That's important to have the student professor relationship, but it was clear that she was also a peer. And eventually we became friends because it was just too easy to like her, to have conversations about things that really matter in a way that reflects my experience and her experience. So she was an academic, right? Right. There is such an investment in the academic research that it becomes quite personal and relevant to everyday life. And so that that's something that that you and I and Ella right. um, have all shared that has made us peers and friends as well as colleagues and you know in in academia itself. Yeah, yeah. Ella was a black woman. She was a filmmaker. Um, yes. You know, she was a feminist. She was one of those people that lived her truth and kind of. She wasn't just sort of academically interested in feminism, right? In blackness and art. It was something she was living day to day. So. Yeah. Yeah. So she was interested in women behind the camera Mm -hmm. as directors, screenwriters, but then she also had her own practice as a performer working in front of the camera and then also doing this incredible voiceover work for all of these novels and children's books and a young adult book. So she was a practitioner and I think that made her work have a certain kind of insight and texture that made her voice really come across in a genuine way. And that was just part of her personality. I mean, I'll use that word again, genuine. You you get it in the writing, you get it in the performance, but you get it in that living her truth, as you're saying, her everyday presence in the world reflected that as well. She also worked with you on the Black Index 
Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Is it still traveling? Yes. There's an exhibition that's up right now at the Lubstorf Gallery in New York City on the Upper East Side. It's a show called The Black Index. And this is an exhibition based on an essay that I wrote called The Black Index. And I collaborated with several people on bringing the exhibition to UC Irvine, the Palo Alto Art Center, the Christian Green Galleries at UT Austin, which are part of the Art Galleries of Black Studies there, and then at the Loopsdorf Gallery. I worked really closely with the exhibition manager, Sarah Watson, and she's the chief curator of the art galleries at Hunter College. And she and I both were very enthusiastic about working together with graduate students, one at Hunter and one at UCI that we could mentor, help them get a publication on their CVs, give them an experience where they can meet other people in the field, you know, develop new skills. So Ella was the graduate student that I asked to be a part of the Black Index. And so we have a publication of the same name as, as the show. And Ella wrote three artist biographical essays that are in the, the catalog. And so I was really happy with her writing, of course, and then gratified to be able to help develop her resume and give her an opportunity to meet artists and work with artists, which is something she really enjoyed doing as an artist herself. Right. Um, and the, the exhibition, which is up currently, it's up until April 3rd, you know, 2022, is dedicated to her. And, and when you go to the gallery and you see the title wall, you'll see this installation is dedicated to the memory of our friend and colleague, Ella Turin. Yeah. You know, she was such a force that it's actually, I'm still in a little bit of denial that she's not with us. I am too. Kathy, this is so surreal. Yeah. I, I just expect to hear from from her and I sort of feel like sometimes I do hear from mm. her like she's still I feel she's very much present That's in our lives wonderful. so when she was writing these essays did she interview each of the artists or did, were you privy to her process at all support what she did is her own research, which I think is really helpful. And she enjoyed being informed before she approached the artists themselves. And in some cases, she did write directly to the artists with questions, but she didn't want to start with, who are you? You know, she wanted to. And then the, the artists really respect that they're talking to someone who has spent time looking at the work and doing research on them. So she wrote um, essays about the great Kenyatta A.C. Hinkle who is based in the Bay Area, who makes different kinds of work, but she focuses right now primarily on Black women and on how to address the death and disappearances of Black women, thousands of them every year under violent circumstances. And she also wrote about um, Whitfield Lovell, who is an you know incredible artist, uh, MacArthur Genius Award grant winner, wrote eloquently about his work. And then she wrote about Lava Thomas, who's another incredible artist who's also based in the Bay Area. How would you describe the work, the second artist, Whitfield level. So one of his many gifts is he makes these photorealist, meticulous drawings of Black people, sometimes just their face, sometimes their whole body. And in the work that's in a Black Index, he couples the drawing of the face, which is on a 9 by 12 dimension sheet of paper, with a playing card. So the playing card is at the bottom and you have this face that's above it. And it's conceptual work. We as viewers have to figure out what the connection is for us mm -hmm. between the playing card and, um, and the African-American person. And we have 24 of his works in the exhibition. Each wow. one is like a beginning of a short story or a film or a novel. And I think that's something that Ella was really tuned into. She loved the poetry of it. She was also a poet. Um, mm -hmm. And that work spoke to her and I think validated some of her own emotions, you know, and thinking about the value of Black life. Would you like to share any of her writing from the catalog? You know, I could read something since we're talking about what. So here's an excerpt of text about the artist Whitfield Lovell written by Ella Turin. 
Lovell's are no ordinary portraits. He combines his memory with visual documentation of the past to present images of Black lives on materials such as paper, wood, and directly on walls. He pairs these with found objects such as flowers, jewelry, vessels, and furniture. Lovell creates artwork that draws viewers in, asking them to consider the stories behind the faces. In many cases, the people in his portraits are more of a composite than the representation of an actual person. Their lives are culled from the many sources Lovell has become an expert at amassing. Lovell reflects, quote, the importance of home, family, ancestry feeds my work entirely. African Americans were generally not aware of who their ancestors were since slaves were sold from plantation to plantation and families were split up. Anytime I pick up one of these old vintage photographs, I have the feeling that this could be one of my ancestors, end of quote. Wow. As well about Kenyatta Hinkle's work, because the, the sort of disappeared Black women, it's kind of like they disappear twice. They disappear, you know, in real life. It's not in the media in the same way. Right. So it's like a double disappearance. Right. So that you would never know that there's right. these thousands of women every year who go disappeared. It's interesting because this is something that Ella was already aware of. And right. I think that it was nice for... Ella to approach the work because she already knew. And when I right. was first introducing her to the artist in the show, she immediately said, oh, yes, I know about this and started to tell me more about it. Yeah, she liked to bring certain things to light. You know, she was a light in and of herself, but she also liked the process of illuminating what was missing or, or maybe what is missing and what we tend not to look at or see Yes. Um, she did that in her activism. Yes. And this podcast is part of that. Yeah. I mean, it was, she had a sort of seamless way of combining her art and her activism and her work in the, you know, arts in prisons field. She'd been doing that work for a very long time when I met her. And so she was the one who introduced it to me. But there was also this incredible warmth and caring. She was like a fountain of that of that kind of energy. And I think that is really rare. Sometimes people get very committed to causes and it kind of takes over their lives and you admire them for commitment to the cause, but they're not necessarily easy people to be around because so much of their life is consumed by the cause. Ella was not like that at all. She was a very warm, personable, supportive person. One of the least petty people I've ever met in my life. Just kindness was kind of her way. And she also managed to maintain energy for all of this activism. You know, I don't know how she did it. And one of the things I'll say just to support what you're saying from my perspective is she was very good at balance. How you balance yeah. so many things in your life that each can take over completely. Right. School can take mm -hmm. over completely. A podcast can take over completely. The research that you need to do to be informed, to be on air, the research to reach out to incarcerated people, the art projects, the performances, the audiobooks. Right. You know, you'd never know that she was as accomplished as she was. She didn't have to be the most important person in the room. Yeah. And that was a part of her. She had an amazing amount of empathy mm -hmm. and she could kind of zero in on exactly what type of support somebody needed because she could see the whole person almost immediately. I agree. I'm going to tell you something or everyone something um the last time i saw ella was about 10 days before she passed and we were doing an exam reading together which means it's like a class of one where you work with your professor to create a syllabus on a topic that you really want to know more about and that becomes part of your process of being educated for your degree and so we were looking at the work of contemporary black women artists and there were a number of exhibitions in the past year in the los angeles area featuring the work of black women artists so we were going to see both parts of Allison 
Pulsar show of ether and earth. Mm -hmm. And so the last time I saw Ella, we went to the Benton Museum of Art, part of the Pomona Colleges, Claremont Colleges, and we were having dinner. And I had told her in our previous meeting that I was kind of at a crossroads where I was having all these different options of things I'm going to do next with my career. And the pandemic has given many of us an opportunity to really reflect on what's most important and what changes did I want to make. These are not the kind of conversations I have with my students, right? Like, but Ella was, as I had mentioned, you know, very special and we were just two years apart in age. Mm. And so I did feel a bit vulnerable, even still sort of saying these things that are personal because that's not what you do. Right. And so when I saw her for the last time and we had dinner, I had brought her a gift and then she had brought me a gift, which we hadn't planned, but you know, we just had that kind of affection for each other. So she gave me a card and there was clearly something in the envelope. Um, and she just said, this is for the journey. So I said, okay. And she said, that's all I'm going to say. And I said, okay. So I opened it and it was a little handheld compass, like something that just fits in the palm of your hand. Right. And I thought how sweet and thoughtful of her, you know, she wasn't trying to give me advice of what I should do. She was just yeah. kind of letting, letting me know that she recognized and appreciated that I was in a moment mm -hmm. where I needed to make some decisions. And it was just such a, a very lovely token and poetic. I mean, it, yes. it is so generous. Yeah, it's very meaningful. She was very special. She really, really was. Yeah, that's an incredible sort of human connection, that ability to sense what someone needs and register that you're there for them a simple gesture. Yeah, because I'm a grown woman too, you know, <laughs> like we both were like, yeah, we can support each other. And that was great. They sent her an email. I think she passed before she could respond, just telling her as much. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate the gift and the thoughtfulness, but I didn't hear back from her. Well, Bridget, I really appreciate you sharing your memories of Ella with me and with our audience. You know, it's hard to give a sense of someone when they're not with you. you. You sort of feel like words aren't really adequate, but we do what we can. And I feel like my life is so much richer for having been able to experience her while she was here. I feel the same way. I feel like it was, you know, she was a gift. Yeah. And she loved doing the podcast. She loved talking to artists. She loved, because the thing about organizations like PAC is there's this whole renewal of humanity that comes from making art. This journey of self-discovery, this release of knowing yourself and knowing your worth. And if you are an artist, which she was, because Ella also also taught inside, mm -hmm. uh, that's a beautiful experience. And she was able to bring all of that knowledge of that type of beauty creation to the podcast and also just to her life in general. But she really enjoyed teaching. Amazing. Yeah. One of the last times we spoke, she had just finished TAing. And she was saying how much she was going to miss all of her students. You know, as a TA, that is pretty rare. Most <laughs> TAs are like, I'm only so glad when I'm not teaching. <laughs> but she was genuinely enjoyed the instruction process and the, just the interaction. And yeah, she gave it her all. Mm -hmm. So there's that line in the Roots song by the, or actually, it's not the Roots, it's Black Alicious. Be a leader by the way you live. Mm. And that's what she did. So thank you again. And thank you for doing this. It's hard to do this and it's hard to put into words. You know, it, is hard. Doing, so it is hard. I appreciate you lining up people who are more than willing to yeah. say, like, let me say to the world that this incredible person is no longer here. Thank you. I'm here with Jimmy Wu, Executive Director of the Inside Out Writers Program and Guest Lecturer at UCLA in the Visual and Performing Arts and Education Program, focusing on art and correction and Annie Buckley, the Executive Director of Prison Arts Collective. Welcome, both of you. Thank you, Kathy. Hi, Jimmy. Thank you so much, Kathy. 
We're going to continue our conversation today about our colleague, Ella Turan, who left us unexpectedly in December. Thank you so much. Jimmy, we're so Thank happy you. to talk with and to have you here with us. We were just reminiscing how you were one of the last guests when Ella was doing the podcast. And she really is, has brought this podcast to fruition because it's just sort of a little seed. Nurture it with Kathy and it's grown so much. Yeah, we know that you had a shared passion for art and social justice and that it was such a thread throughout her work. And, you know, she and I shared that as well. We were hoping that you could share a little bit about the work that you do and also how you came to know Ella. Thank you both so much, Kathy and Annie, for creating space, you know, for me to just kind of like share my thoughts about our dear friend Ella and I just have to say in advance that I apologize if at some point during this conversation I become emotional because Ella was such a, a significant presence and influence in my life. And I first met Ella years and years ago when I was newly hired at Insight Writers. And my organization provides creative writing classes to youth incarcerated in our LA County juvenile halls. And we are now in our 27th year of doing it. Separately, we provide re-entry services and pro-social activities for our returning citizens, individuals who have been exposed and subjected to both our juvenile and adult justice system. And I remember when I first joined Insal Writers as the case manager, one of the very first community partners that I was introduced to was Ella. It was really just seeking her expertise, right? And her energy and thinking of how we can continue to, I guess, expand the work that we were doing in the juvenile halls here in LA County. So our organization partnered with Ella and she she was providing the lyrics on lockdown workshops to our youth incarcerated, specifically in the compound in the facility that's called Barry J. Nidor Juvenile Hall, where they house these youthful offenders who are now being tried as adults and if convicted will be uh, serving adult like sentences. And I remember just like meeting Ella for the very first time in this facility and immediately just being so completely drawn to her because she had this aura where she wanted to make sure that while she was in your presence, you were all that she cared about. And that for me was so incredibly moving because when we talk about youth who are incarcerated, sometimes they feel so completely abandoned and neglected, you know, being isolated and that they are the throwaways, lives that are expendable, right? And then being able to see Ella really care for them was something that for me was just like, you know, kind of like, I guess a very meaningful experience for me to then really think about how I could show up for people at all times, and really take advantage of the opportunities I had with people in person every single moment that I was given an opportunity. Later on, you know, my friendship with Ella continued to, to blossom, and she ended up, you know, while she was at Occidental College, really, you know, just so instrumental in creating a partnership between Insight Writers and Occidental College where she really wanted to bring students from Oxy into the world of Insight Writers. She felt it was so important for people from various walks of life to come together and learn from one another. Later on, Ella was one of the original members of the Transformative In Prison Program work group, where we are now coming together as a collective and thinking of ways that we can really work alongside one another in the spirit of collaboration and think of what we can do to really provide direct services or programs to the adults 
incarcerated in our California state prisons. And Ella reached out to me and she was like, Jimmy, I really want you to be part of this. And I was fortunate enough to also then be able to attend the very first gathering of individuals who are now part of this TPW work group, trying to think of what we could do to really support so many people who are currently still incarcerated in our state prison system. And it just hurts, right? Because as you mentioned, just recently, I was so incredibly privileged to be interviewed by both you, Kathy, and also Ella for the podcast. And I'm going to always be so grateful, you know, that I had that moment because it will be the last moment that I ever will have with Ella. I am so grateful for that because whenever I need to hear her voice again, that's something I can always go back to. Always just focusing the attention on me and my accomplishments and my achievements, and that's the person she was. Never wanting to be, you know, kind of like identified as just this incredible trailblazer that she will always be. She was such a bright light that she shone her own bright light on so many people. And I experienced something so similar, and I feel like most everyone we've talked to had that moment when they met her and just felt that her welcoming you into that space of just like joy and that really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me the space to share. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot, you know, to take in and to remember and I just was thinking as you were talking how many of these different programs we have here across the state of California that she was part of, right? She was part of Prison Arts Collective with us for like at least seven, eight years. She was a big part of Inside Out Writers. She was in the, you know, just TPW. Like every, ever since she passed, so many people are coming up saying how, oh, Justice Arts Coalition, like she just was helping with all of them in, in such a meaningful way. Jimmy, when you were talking about how you wanted to emulate her ability to be there and empathize. What strikes me about her is that that was innate. Like it's something that she just had as a quality. When you're around her, you kind of want to emulate that, but she could do it just from the get-go. I keep saying it over and over, but I think it strikes me because it's so rare. She saw the whole person, especially with the types of clients that you have. It helps you become visible to yourself, especially with the work that you're doing. So in a way it makes, it kind of reinforces the power of the work that you're doing. The fact that she's able to do that on an individual level just over and over and over again, because that's how she moved through the world. She moved through the world seeing whole beings and like recognizing their pain and saying, okay, now I can help you kind of move forward through creativity. And perhaps you're going, you're on this journey of discovery and I'm going to be with you for part of it. I mean, there are many words to describe it, but it's incredibly moving and beautiful. Absolutely. I just have to say in return, Kathy is like, you know, what I find the most beautiful about all this with Ella having walked this life, right, alongside all of us is that her impact is going to last for generations, right? Because of the impact that she's made on all of us, those who have been so incredibly fortunate and privileged to have, you know, learned from her, we're passing it down, right? We're moving it forward. And that's exactly what Ella would want for us to continue doing this work. And even like, you know, during my introduction, um, your introduction to me, I should say, I am just finding myself in this very completely kind of like unknown territory as a guest lecturer at UCLA. And I can say that every single week when I am preparing kind of like, you know, what it is that I want to share with my students, I think about Ella. And it's because like, look at how many years, you know, she spent in these establishments and these institutions just really trying to be the best educator, right? And to really, I guess, pass on the powerful lessons that she's learned. 
in her own life and thinking of how to be both a scholar and an educator and providing all of those very powerful lesson plans and just making sure that we were fully aware of everything that was going place. But at the same time, and this is the biggest part, right, is also personalizing it where she wanted to make sure that it wasn't just like a class where you're just be giving stats and you know you're giving assignments for research purposes or what have you but now really trying to humanize it all and drawing in all these themes that are universal that we can all identify with and relate to as people and i think that was her biggest strength being able to bring in both worlds and so yeah i just wanted to mention that because you're spot on you know um, with everything that you have said kathy and you as well yeah i think she really enjoyed teaching ella loved her students all of them (laughs) one of the last things she said during our last meeting was how much she was going to miss her students and how sad she was that she wasn't going to see them you know that she was going to get a new crop of students, but she wasn't going to have that particular energy that she had with that particular group. Something, um, Jimmy, that you were saying about the universal themes makes me think of her creative work as well. And I don't know if, if you know this, but she was able to perform her Love, Loss, and Liberation with us at the women's prison in Chino. And the women were so enchanted by this. And it was really important to her not only to do it, but to then do these workshops afterwards. And so she had the women create these beautiful collages, one gigantic face that they all made together. And the whole plan was to get it to her to be in one of her performances. And with, you know, how it is working with corrections, sometimes things take a while in the pandemic and what have you, but we finally got it out and it was on stage when she performed it virtually (laughs) during the pandemic. I think they just related and were laughing and they understood like that universality of what she captured and the narratives that she captured through stories of hair and her family and it spoke to them. Did you have like any special other memory that you wanted to share? You have shared so much, you know, beautiful thoughts about her. Yeah, you know, going back to like when we all first gathered together for the first time with the transformative in prison program work group in Oakland. California. You know, just finally think back to that weekend when I was sitting there with Ella. And there were so many things that were going on in my life, both personally and professionally, that despite just everything else that was going on that we had for that weekend and everything uh, that we were discussing, I will always remember she and I finding time to sit alone away from everyone where she's holding my hand. And she's just being the best listener that anyone can possibly hope for. And being just so incredibly reassuring and comforting. And I think it's like during our moments of despair and heartache and just having incredibly difficult moments in our lives, that's when we kind of like really realize who our dearest and closest friends are. And for me, Ellen was definitely up there. She was one of those individuals. She was so critical in my own mental health during that time by just showing up, creating space. And letting me really just turn to her and for taking care of me. Because I think that's one thing that Ella was. She was not a caretaker by the definition of a caretaker, but she did take care of so many of us. Yeah, and part of that was the way that she listened wholly with her heart and her ears. (laughs) (laughs) Such a great description and a good thing of what she passes on as well. Yeah. Thank you so, so, so much, Jimmy. Of course. And no apologies are necessary for, <laughs> you know, crying. We're, you know, we're human beings talking about a human being that we love dearly and we wish was still with us. So that's what human beings do. When they, <laughs> exactly. When things like that happen. Yeah. 
You know, Bella was here right now, and we're. I was having a proper conversation with her. She would probably say, "Jimmy, don't even trip. You gotta keep that shit real." So thank you for keeping it real. <laughs> exactly, <Yes>. exactly. <laughs> she would put it exactly like that too. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, I love that. Yeah, that was my roundabout way of saying that. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you both. We miss you, Ella. We miss we you, Ella. We love Ella. you. We love you. Outside Inside Radio is brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. Our collaborative teaching teams include faculty, students, staff, and peer facilitators inside the prisons. Our classes include art making, art history, reflection, and the cultivation of a safe space. We are based at San Diego State University and partner with universities including UC Irvine and Cal State University campuses in Humboldt, Fullerton, and San Bernardino. Prison Arts Collective is a project of Arts in Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Each of our guests is involved in bringing the arts to people experiencing incarceration. Many are returned residents who continue to pursue a creative life or artists working directly with incarcerated populations to expand access to the arts. A special thanks to MIGFUS20 and RTB45 for the music used in the podcast. Take good care and see you next time on Outside Inside. <laughs>